Now, at the end of this month, we are going to celebrate Memorial Day. Memorial Day. Everybody looks forward to Memorial Day. The hot dogs, the ices, the uh, snow cones and fudge pops. You know, it is the unofficial start of summer. The pool will open and everything will be great. But of course, you all know the deeper meaning of Memorial Day, don't you? That way back when, I mean, almost from the beginning of our nation's founding, informal groups have gathered to preserve the memory of those who died in battle, serving our country as you know, soldiers and sailors and Marines and Coast Guardsmen. And of course, back in the day, they officially named it a federal holiday. And so the banks are closed and summer kicks off. And when you think about America, the spirit of sacrifice that Memorial Day acknowledges and commemorates is everywhere you look. Of course, first and foremost, on the battlefields around the world, men and women laying down their life to provide us our freedoms that we enjoy. But in May of 1942, that's 79 years ago, that kind of sacrifice came home in a big way for every American. And this month, 79 years ago, Americans got their first ration books. The federal government had instituted price controls and uh, regulations giving only certain items to certain people, ensuring that the war effort could stay operational. And, and I looked this up this week because I didn't know too in-depth the details. And items like gasoline, butter, sugar, rubber, and paper were restricted. Uh, in fact, most Americans only got three gallons of gasoline per week. That was their individual ration. The ration they gave you for sugar was basically half of what the average American used in a given week. And, you know, when you couldn't buy bread at the store and you couldn't make things, our moms and grandmothers and great-grandmothers, they baked. And so they went through a lot of these staples in ways that we just don't today. And so the government handed out these ration books to every adult and child, allowing them certain items. And, and the thing that, that really baffles me is that Nobody really batted an eye. That was something that everybody bought into almost immediately. They knew that everybody had a role to play in ensuring that World War II was the success that it was. Now, I mean, last year, hey, do you want to go on to Jesus Kids? You want to go? We, we want you back there if you want to be. Cool. So <laughs> I sometimes get in the paralysis of decision-making. My waitress will come, and I thought I wanted the enchilada plate, but the quesadillas look awfully good. And then I get in that moment, and I just can't decide. So anyway, you know, we've all been there, done that. No big deal. So we get stuck in 2020 and a pandemic, and all of a sudden you can't find eggs or toilet paper, and people lose their mind. But our people, 79 years ago, bought in completely. They were glad to plant victory gardens and to go without so that the soldiers on the battlefields of Europe and in the Pacific could be successful. That level of sacrifice is amazing. And in the same way that they sacrificed for the war effort, I don't know if you know this, every Christian, man, woman, child, rich, poor, doesn't matter, every one of us contributes to God's mission in the world. 
course, over the past few weeks, we've been working through Paul's letter to the Titus, uh, the series called God's People in a Broken World. And what we've seen already is that God has a people called the church, and he puts them in far-off places among people that Paul calls uh, lazy gluttons and evil and liars. They're not living among the best of the best. But the way we live among those people matters. This morning, we're going to see that God's people either dishonor or adorn the gospel by the way we live. God's people either dishonor or adorn the gospel by the way they live. If y'all are with me, say, I'm with you. Okay, all right, you're with me then. Well, let's keep going, because today we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, finally turning the page out of chapter 1, and we're going to see the way God's people should live. And so, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it to chapter 2 of Paul's letter to Titus. And while you're there, uh, while you're getting there, let me just kind of give you a recap, if you haven't been with us in a couple of weeks. Uh, Paul has left his young protege, a man named Titus, on the island of Crete to finish the job of establishing churches in every city on the island. Titus was first tasked with appointing elders, men who were going to oversee the ministry of the church. And so Paul gave them stipulations about what kind of character these men should have and, and what kind of capacity they should have for teaching. They need to be able to teach and to be sound in the faith and to refute those who speak against the gospel. Because last week we saw even just early on in the days of the church there on Crete, already many false teachers had arisen and were trying to lead God's people astray. And so we looked in depth last week at the way God's people are called to identify and reject false teaching. And, and this is really important, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page from last week, that Paul's main concern when it came to false teaching was not primarily that they had false doctrine, or bad theology. Having insufficient theological knowledge or deficient theological knowledge is sort of the entryway into the Christian life. All of us have at various times been deficient in our understanding of who God is. And we've said things that we wish we could take back. Y'all with me? You said something in a Sunday school class that still haunts you. Yeah, I've preached some sermons that I wish I could get a do-over on. So Paul's problem is not that there were some deficient theology. Because that's a problem that can be fixed. Paul's main problem with these false teachers was that their conduct failed to attain to the standard that God required from his people. So it wasn't just that they were spreading false doctrine. It was that they were leading God's people astray in the way that they lived. And so Paul told Titus that these men were, let's see, worthless for any good deed, detestable and disobedient. The conduct of their life was deficient, and that was a major problem. And so after Paul identified that problem, he turns the page to Titus. And, and that really sets the stage for what we read in chapter 2. He says, these false teachers are leading our people astray. They're spreading this terrible false doctrine and false way of living. But Titus, you're supposed to be different. He says in Titus 2 verse 1, But as for you... Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what's good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, 
to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, everybody likes a good practical sermon, and there's some practical stuff here, and we're going to work our way through it. It's going to take us a couple of weeks. We're going to deal with the men and slaves today, and we'll leave the ladies for next week on Mother's Day. But there's a principle at play here that we have to see before we get to the practical. All right, we've got to look at the principle before the practical. And the principle really is revealed to us in verse 1. When Paul tells Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And this is a strange phrase to me. We read it and our, our minds just kind of rush through it. And so we, we think we contract it. Speak sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. Of course, that's Titus's job. He's a preacher. I want him to teach the right stuff. And Paul does tell him to teach sound doctrine. Back in Titus 1.9, when he's given the qualifications for elders, he says they need to be able to hold fast to the teaching so they be able to teach in sound doctrine. But what Paul says here to Titus is teach what is fitting for sound doctrine. And the word fitting means to be appropriate. Teach what's appropriate for sound doctrine. Teach what's seemly or suitable for sound doctrine. What Paul's concerned about here in chapter 2 is not so much the details of systematic theology. Make sure these people know how to explain and parse out the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, and three divine beings, three divine persons. I just did it. I just had that deficient theology that I wish I could retract. One being, three persons. He's not talking about the doctrinal side. He's talking about that which is fitting for sound doctrine. Titus isn't out here regurgitating some doctrinal facts, but helping Christians like me and you understand how the way we live flows from those doctrinal facts that there's a connection between sound teaching and all those words, those character qualities and traits and behaviors that we read in verses 2 through 10. That when it comes to Christianity, this is probably one of the most important points of my sermon, so get this. When it comes to Christianity, it's impossible for us to separate our beliefs from our behavior, from the way we live, from the things we believe about God. That our belief about Jesus, our, our understanding of who God is and who he's shown himself to be for us in Christ, changes everything about us. Not just our thoughts, like we've discovered some new knowledge about God, but it has real practical application to the way we live our lives. See, Paul's just come off talking about these false teachers, whose problem was, yeah, they had deficient theology, but that deficient theology led them to live godless lives. They're worthless for every good deed. And so Titus is now not just to appoint elders, but he's supposed to be a living and breathing counterpoint to all the false teachers running around in this island. 
that he's going to be teaching not just the finer points of doctrine, what distinguishes a Baptist from a Methodist or a Presbyterian, but what kind of life God's people should live if God is who he says he is. Teach what's fitting for sound doctrine. See, Paul knew that there is a difference between theology and ethics, between the gospel and the way we live in response to it. Paul could go into a place and open up his Old Testament and start preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, who came in fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to his people Israel and how he lived a sinless life and he died a sacrificial death on the cross so that whoever believes in him, who takes hold of him by faith, could know God and be with God forever. And that's great. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. But the challenge is, and you and I have lived this, is that if we get the gospel in our heads, but we're never instructed in the way of life that's supposed to flow from it, we end up wandering aimlessly. And so Paul tells Titus to teach what is fitting for sound doctrine, what flows naturally from it. Help people connect the dots from the truth about Jesus to the actual world they're living in. That's the problem. We need to figure out how God would have us live if he is who he says he is. Paul said if these Cretans really come to know God as God is and as he has revealed himself in Jesus, then they're not going to be liars evil beasts, or lazy gluttons anymore. They're going to be different. They're going to live as God's people in a broken world. And so Paul opens up the practical side of it. Teach what's according or what's fitting for sound doctrine. Older men better live like this. Older women need to live like that. Younger women aren't forgotten either. There's a role for them to play. Younger men, especially, get those young dudes under control before they cause problems everywhere they go. And he even has a word for slaves. See, the New Testament says that every Christian, man and woman, from whatever station of life they're in, has a part to play in living out our corporate identity as the people of God. The New Testament speaks to men and women over and over and over. Rich and poor, slave and free, rich and old, I mean old and young, parents and children. Every station is included. Every one of God's people has a part to play in us becoming the people he has intended for us to be. Just like our grandparents and great-grandparents and moms and dads who played a part in the successful war efforts by rationing sugar and rubber and gasoline had a part to play in America when in the war. It's just the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus taught his people this. When he was with his disciples, he would give them all kind of wonderful teaching. You know, like the teaching that you, you couldn't help but take notice of. Uh, they'd said he teaches as one who has his own authority. He's not footnoting and quoting all the experts. He just speaks, and we know it's true. And he did this in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the greatest sermon ever been preached. And at the end of it, he had a word of warning for everybody who was there. I think this warning applies to everybody who hears God's words preached, not just those who were there that day. But nevertheless, this is what he told them. Matthew 7, 24. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. 
And when the storm came and the winds blew and the rains fell, his house was secure. But the one who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm came and the winds blew and the rains fell, the man's house was washed away. When it comes to Christianity, it doesn't matter what you know or what you believe. What matters is how you respond to it. Your belief is intimately and organically related to your behavior. Like in the Ten Commandments. We all know the Ten Commandments. It begins, you shall have no other gods before me. But if you look in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, it actually begins with something else. God tells his people, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. God's salvation that he had so miraculously worked for them and those plagues led to a certain way of life that was totally distinct from those who hadn't experienced that act of salvation. Do you, do you connect the dots here? That for those of us who have experienced the salvation that Jesus secured for us in his death on the cross, therefore are called to live different, to be different. Paul will say, we'll see it in a couple of weeks in Titus chapter 2 verse 11, why don't you look down there with me, Titus 2.11. Paul says, and this is actually what he grounds his entire statement about the way Christians live. This is, this is where he gets to in verse 11. He says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. That's all people. And he doesn't mean everybody without exception, so everybody in the entire world is saved. He means that all people from every station of life and every ethnic group are now invited to receive. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. He's brought salvation for all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You can connect the dots. We've received the salvation that God provides. He's, he's sent His own Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to redeem us, from the penalty of our sins. That because Jesus suffered in our place on the cross, we don't have to fear God as a terrible judge and be separated apart from Him all eternity. Jesus has bore the penalty that our sin deserved. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin. But what Paul here is saying also is not just the penalty of our sin, but the power of sin over us. What he talks about in Romans 6, that we've died with Christ and been raised to walk in newness of life. Therefore, you and I are not bound to sin. We're not chained up to it. It's not our master anymore to make us obey it. But we've been set free. He, he says, we've been set free to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. He's talking about the power that sin has older, over you. And this is something y'all need to know. Every last one of you. We all need to hear this. Sometimes we can reduce our understanding of the cross to say that it's great that Jesus saved us and put us in a right standing with God. But what do you expect? We're going to continue to sin. We are human after all. We're not perfect, and God knows that. We make excuses, and we make peace with sin. But Paul says in this passage that if we know the gospel, if we've understood what the gospel really says, that Jesus didn't just die to save us from the penalty of the sins, but to save us from its power. He set us free. So we'd no longer offer ourselves as slaves to sins, but we'd offer ourselves as slaves to God in righteousness. That's what he wants for you, to live a life of godliness that pleases him now. 
He's saved you from the penalty and power of sin. And Paul says in verse 13, we're to look for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Christ Jesus. We're looking forward to the day when we won't just be saved from the, pre the, the penalty, the power, but the, even the presence of sin, that we'll be with God forever, totally free from it. That was a bonus sermon. You can take that one to the bank. But this is the idea that when God saves us, he doesn't just save us to live any old way he want, we want. He saves us to live godly lives now. We're supposed to live differently as God's people in a broken world. And I think it's important for us to realize what's at stake. You know, the, the old propaganda posters from the war office in World War II, it's probably, you probably know this and seen it because it's pretty powerful. Loose lips sink ships. Loose lips sink ships. So you get a letter home from Johnny, better not go telling people where he's going because you could inadvertently give away top secret plans that could subvert the war effort. And that's what happens when Christians refuse to live the life God's called us to live. We subvert what God is doing in the world. We, we accomplish the spiritual equivalent of loops, lips, sink ships. Corporately, the problem becomes then that the behavior that we're supposed to live out as godly people with upright lives in a dark world is totally obscured. Paul says in verse 5 that the problem when uh, older women and younger women fail to live out this calling that God gives to them, in verse 5 he says the word of God would be dishonored. That there's a certain kind of life they're supposed to live so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What, what word is that? But the word that says that the God who saved you from the penalty of your sins has set you free to live a life that pleases Him. And when we live contrary to that, that word is dishonored. We don't live up to what it says. In verse 8, Paul says, when young men don't get their lives in order, those opponents who are always going to be talking about the people of God, always charging them with all kind of crazy stuff, saying, well, they think they can just live any old way they want, that they're better than everybody else because they have a Savior or something. Paul says in verse 8 that if they don't live up to their calling, then those opponents who speak those things will have a point, that it'll stick. They really are hypocrites. But if they become the person God's created them to be, then the opponent will be put to shame because they make all kind of accusations, but they're obviously not true. And lastly, he says in verse 10 to the slaves that when the slave lives out their identity, living in subjection to their own master and becoming a really upstanding person, they adorn the gospel of God in every respect. They make it look even more beautiful than it really is. Like a bride who shows up at the back of the hall and you turn around and look at her and she's got pearls and diamonds and a flowing veil and man, wow, beautiful. That's what he says a Christian living out their identity as one of God's people in the world is like. They're adorning the gospel. So, Corporately, if we don't achieve this, if we, if we don't live out our identity, the mission of God in the world in saving us and making us a, the, light on the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden, whose good works show the whole world what we're all about and therefore lead to praise of God, when we fail to achieve that identity, what do we have left? But a bunch of empty words. God could save somebody somewhere, but don't get too close to me you're not going to see any evidence of its truthfulness in my life. 
So because of that, I think that ungodliness and hypocrisy in the church has done more to hinder the spread of the gospel in the world than anything else. Ungodliness and hypocrisy. More than totalitarian and communist governments who keep the doors closed to missionaries. More than postmodern philosophies. More than anything else. It's that we, as God's people, fail to be the people he's called us to be. And when an unbelieving world looks at us, maybe they'll give us a chance to tell about Jesus and what he's done in my life, but don't we have to sometimes apologize for what a terrible example we are of the power of God to save? They see hypocrisy in us, bitterness, anger, fear, and maybe they ask, okay, maybe Jesus was a real person who lived somewhere, but if this is what he does to a person's life, I don't want anything to do with that. And, and maybe you've experienced, you know, unbelieving people who are better people than some Christians you know. They're more kind and charitable and loving and forgiving. They put Christians to shame. And therefore, is it any wonder that the perception of most people, most unbelieving people when it comes to the church, is overwhelmingly negative? And so I think that when we fail to achieve this identity, when our belief doesn't change the way we behave, when our knowledge of God doesn't bear fruit, but we end up being lifeless trees, we've got a problem. And it's a problem that Paul left Titus on Crete to solve. False teachers are running around leading people astray, but Titus, you have to be different. You have to be a living and breathing counterpoint. You have to be an example to everyone else of the kind of life God is calling our people to live. And that's where Paul gets into the practical. And you read it, what kind of life is this? How should God's people live? And it's not radical. He doesn't say move to Calcutta and be the mother and Teresa of your generation. He doesn't say leave everything behind and go around to the other side of the world. He just looks at the old men and given, this is kind of wild, given life expectancy in the first century versus today, old men includes every man 50 and up. So you get your AARP card, and you're in. Okay, but it's not radical. It, what he's looking for, the life that God is calling his people to live, is not radical. It's not that difficult even, especially when it's carried out in the power of the Spirit. He tells the old man to be temperate. Maybe your Bible says sober. Sober. Of course, the straightforward meaning of that means that Older men should be temperate in their use of alcohol. That's what it means to be sober. But the only other two places it's used in the New Testament are in 1 Timothy. And both, time it, both times it means to be sober-minded, to have a clear head, to think clearly. I was put to shame the past couple of weeks because Clinton told me, oh yeah, we need rain. And I'm a worrywart. And so I start obsessing, and Aaron can tell you this, I start obsessing about rain. And I'm driving around, I'm looking at tanks, and I'm like, wow, all these tanks are low. And I bring it up to some of y'all older men, you know, oh, we need rain. And I was kind of amazed. You're like, not worried about it. You've been there, done that. You've gone through seasons of drought and floods. You're clear-headed when you think about the need for rain. You know rain doesn't give you a warning. It just pops up one weekend and gives you five and a half inches. 
You've been there, done that. I'm over here totally a novice. I'm a young guy without any experience. My head gets clouded, and I start worrying. How am I going to, what, what are we going to do if there's no rain? Oh, man, what? I talk about it with Aaron. I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything about cows. But I'm talking about, oh, what are they going to do with their cows? You know, and it's like, what are you even worried about, Brad? And that's the benefit of wisdom and age. Older men are, by their nature, more clear-headed. They've been around the block a time or two, and they've seen things work out when you might be tempted to worry. That's what Paul's talking about. Sober-minded, clear-headed in the way you think. Don't get yourself tied up in knots. It's going to work out. Be temperate. He says they need to be dignified. Dignified. Meaning serious and worthy of respect. And there are certain things that men of a certain age should not and will not do. And that's right dignified. They need to be that. They need to be sensible. And this one shows up over and over and over in this list, like it's important or something. To be sensible means to be prudent and thoughtful. To not act impulsively, but to hold up a second and let's think this thing through. If we're going to do something, let's make sure it's the right thing to do. Mr. Bobby told me that. Pastor, we know we got to do something coming out of this COVID thing, but I'm not sure this is it. That's being sensible. That's what we need in the church of God. We need people who have been around a time or two, know how God works, and are willing to say, hey, let's think about things. Paul says they need to be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. By that, I think he means they need to be solid when it comes to faith in God. They know God. They know how God is, and they are not going to complain they're not going to wallow in their pastor's worry. They know God and they trust Him and they're going to express that faith. They're sound in faith. They're sound in love. They care about people. They love people. You don't have to worry about how they're going to respond to somebody who's down and out. They love others soundly, healthily. And they persevere. They're strong under pressure. That is what a godly older man is all about. The commentator George Knight says that they're to manifest a spiritual maturity that's obvious for the entire community to see. Have you known older men like that? I know, I know this church has benefited from men like that. I know your life, you've benefited from men like that. An older Sunday school teacher who invested in you. A deacon who took you under their wing. You, you've known these men. They are the foundation and bedrock of every church. That's why I think Paul lists them first. Because as go the men in a church, so goes the church. Which is not to deny the value or the worth or the role of women. Paul has plenty to say for them, and we're going to see it next week. But there is a special calling in the church for men. Just as there is in the world. As go the men, so goes the church. They set the pace and standard that everybody else follows. You're around these men, and you're overwhelmed. You want to be like that. They set the pace and standard. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You're encouraged to be around them because you know they are walking with God. And so Paul says that's the way the men should be, different. But he also talks to the young men, verses 6 through 8. He says they need to be sensible. There it is again. Prudent and thoughtful, doing what's right in the moment. Y'all know, and I know from personal experience, that young men are often impulsive. They act on emotion. One word from a stranger gets your blood boiling. You're ready to fight. 
most dangerous thing in the entire world is a fighting age male with no purpose. They're going to tear something up. It's the way they're supposed to be. They're supposed to tear stuff up, but they got to tear the right things up. And so Paul says, these young men, hey, rein it in, boys. Be thoughtful and prudent. Know the right emotion, the right action in a given time. And the thing I find comforting about that, being a younger man and finding myself bound to my passions from time to time, is that Paul says that a person who comes to know Jesus will experience this in their life. This is an impossible standard that I somehow have to attain. But y'all young men, here, anybody under 50, Jesus wants us to tame our passions and to live sensibly, to be wise beyond our age, to act with some dignity and some gravity. And it's hard to sort of shoot in the dark and land on that. And so Paul tells Titus that he's supposed to be the example for these young guys. He says, in all things... Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Titus' role wasn't simply to teach Adam, do as I do, or do as I say and not as I do. Titus is supposed to take up into himself the calling that God's given all Christians and to be an example for these young men. It's what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, show yourself an example of those who believe. Right before that, of course, he has to say, don't let anybody look down on you for your youth, but set the believers an example. And the whole idea is that, not that, and I find this challenging, because at least on one hand, I recognize that my role is something like Titus and Timothy's in our church. And therefore, I find the microscope put down on me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult and challenging. But what he really does intend is that when these elders or teachers are set up in a church, they're supposed to be more for us than Bible teachers. But they're somehow supposed to embody the thing we're all striving for. And that's, of course, the case for Titus, that he's supposed to be the example for these young men in every good deed, in purity of doctrine, believing what's supposed to be believed, in the way he speaks, and in being dignified. Of course, the whole goal is that the opponent wouldn't have anything to say about him, that their accusations would, would be deflected, that they wouldn't have any meat to it, because, of course, they're going to face some accusations. They are. But when they're living up to the identity God's called them to, it won't stick. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, he speaks of the slaves, which is challenging for us. Living in 21st century America, I mean, we're re really sensitive to that. But we all know first century slavery was different than the slavery practice in America. And uh, you could buy yourself out of slavery, and you could come into slavery in, in many different ways. Um, but the sort of startling thing about it isn't that slave, slaves were present in the church. In, in the first century, slaves outnumbered freed people. So it's kind of expected that there would be slaves present. But what is amazing is that Paul speaks to them like they mattered. He speaks to them on the same level that he spoke to the older men and the younger men. That they belonged to the people of God just as much as anybody else did. He, he would say in Galatians 3.28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That's different. Broken world stratifies itself. 
lumps people into all different kind of groups. We're told all the time that all sorts of people have all sorts of advantages over all sorts of other kinds of people. And perhaps it's true, no doubt. But in the church, we're one. Slaves and free people get the same kind of instructions. Of course, they're particular to their own stations in life. Just as Paul tells the older men to exemplify certain characteristics and older women and younger women to exemplify theirs that are particular to their calling in life, nevertheless, God has something for all of us to do in every station. He tells them the slaves ought to be subject to their own masters in everything. Not, they should be well-pleasing and not argumentative nor pilfering, but showing all good faith. You see, it's easy to think that maybe some early slaves would have heard the revolutionary gospel, that Jesus Christ saves everybody. doesn't matter what station you're from in life, what ethnicity you are, whether you're male or female. He offers the gospel of grace to everybody. And you hear your pastor or Titus coming in from out of town saying, hey, belief impacts behavior. And since we know that in Christ we're all one, why should I go back to work tomorrow? Why should I listen to that guy? I've been set free from my sin. I'm living freely before God. Paul even says in Galatians, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So, hey, I'm free. But what would have happened if in the first century every Christian slave didn't show up for work? I'd give Christians a pretty bad name. And so Paul says, hey, do your best. Don't just, I mean, Peter says this, don't just serve as to give eye service, but really serve because you're serving the Lord and not your master. And I think for me, that's where this passage comes home. Because, yeah, I mean, none of us in here are in the condition of the first century bondservant. But from time to time, we find ourselves under the authority of someone else. And it's easy at work or at school to do enough to just get by. To squirrel away an hour or two here when nobody's watching to watch YouTube videos or whatever. But what God would have us do is to serve cheerfully, not pilfering, but knowing that the way we work and the way we act at school has a bearing on people's perception of the church. He says that by doing so, they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. And so I think it's obvious, we just worked through a few of these, that the way we live matters. You and I, we each have a part to play in what God is doing in the world. If we're going to be God's people in a broken world, we need to think long and hard about the way we live. We should strive to connect the dots between what we say we believe and the way we behave. That there is a direct connection. That by our lives, we will either dishonor or adorn the gospel. And so this morning, I might just ask you, to consider in your own mind. What do people assume about God by the way I live my life? Am I a good example of what God wants to do for other people? And Paul could say that God showed him grace to make him an example of his mercy. He says, basically, if God could save me, he could save anybody. And maybe you have a story like that. Maybe your life before Christ was sort of dishonorable, detestable. You weren't good for anything. But now you've been redeemed from the penalty of your sins and set free from the power of sin. And now your life is totally different. And we call that story a testimony. 
Now, before I knew the Lord, I was angry and self-righteous, but Jesus saved me and humbled me so that now all I want to do is tell people about him. That's a testimony. Do you have a story like that? Do you have a testimony of what God has done in your life? And is it true? If we were to follow behind you and look at your life, would you be adorning the gospel or would you be dishonoring it? And I might ask some of you older men, as we ran through some of those character qualities, do you see those in you? Are, are you a standard of the spiritual maturity that God desires for everybody? Or are you kind of slumping across the finish line? Paul says, hey, you're first. You're the priority here. Sit up, older men. Everybody's watching. Set the pace. Set the example. Are you a young man? Controlled by emotion. Are you a teenager? Find yourself whipped around by everything that comes at you. Now, David prayed this prayer. He, he asked that God would make his sons as grown-up trees, even in their youth, and make his daughters as pillars in the temple of God. It's possible for God to use teenagers beyond what the world expects. Think, hey, they're just a bunch of kids. What can you expect? Hey, we all been there, done that. We lived our lives crazy when we were in high school and college. They're going to go their own way and do their own thing, just like all of us. But it's possible for God to use you. It doesn't matter your age. He wants to. He wants to set you free to be a shining example of what He wants to do in other people's lives. So as we strive to be God's people together in a broken world, church, it matters the way we live. So let's commit ourselves to living the right way, to taking on those character qualities, to letting our beliefs influence our behavior, and letting the truth of the gospel shape the way we live. You know, pray with me.